so quiet so quickly. Well, uh, my name is Marco. I am the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse Community Church. Thank you guys so much for joining us this morning. How are you guys doing? Yeah? Chilling? I like it. Um, (laughs) uh, That threw me off. I don't know why. Um, Nevertheless, we're going to find ourselves today. I have a a lot of real estate here. So uh, we're going to find ourselves today in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses uh, 17 through 19. So if you would like to open your Bible or you'd like to load your Bible, uh, go ahead and go there now. What I'll do is I'll just ramble a little bit in light of where we're headed and kind of what's been going on and a little bit about where we're uh, not just headed today, but in the future. So today marks the last installment uh, in this series. Uh, We've been in this series for the past couple of months. It's Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. This has been a wonderful series from a short book. Um, I've had some conversations and and I found myself even in the middle of those conversations looking back at my time uh, when I was a new Christian thinking back, I've never heard of this book. Where, Where is it? Are you sure it's in the Bible? Because it's so short. It's right in the middle of the Old Testament. He's one of the minor prophets, and, uh, and you can breeze through it in five minutes. Uh, yet we've been in this book for the past couple of months uh, because it is just so uh, densely packed, not just with content, but with challenging content, content that has forced us, I would hope that has forced us to look at ourselves, to look at our sin, and to look at not just who Jesus is, but ultimately what he has done and what he is doing, uh, particularly in the midst of uh, so much chaos. And so, as I mentioned, today we find ourselves coming to a close. We're finally landing the plane in Habakkuk. Uh, Next week, we're going to start our series, a new series uh, titled Citizens, uh, as we look at a study in the book of Philippians. And so we'll be there pretty much through the fall. Uh, We'll give you more details on that later, but if you'd like to do some reading ahead, I would highly encourage that. Philippians is a great book. And I'll be honest, as we even looked at Habakkuk, excuse me, as we looked at Habakkuk, I remember just being slightly skeptical. Um, So one of the things that we do is we partner uh, a lot with uh, Logos Community Church in Harlingen. We still do sermon series uh, alongside of Pastor Jeff uh, out there, and so we meet weekly. And Jeff was actually the one that, that had suggested Habakkuk. And I remember thinking, similar to the conversations that I had as we began the study, it was, well, it's a short book. I don't know. How much could he have said? How much can he say? I really want to do Jonah. And, uh, and then we did Habakkuk, and it's been awesome. Again, just a lot in three chapters. Very rich, very dense. Now, I'm assuming you guys have gotten to verses 17 through 19. Let me give you a little bit of a review from last week, because that's going to give you some context in light of what we're talking about today. So last week, one of the things that we talked about, or the thing that we talked about, was fear. Uh, The question that was presented to you last week was, when you experience fear, what do you do with it? And that was a very intentional question because it didn't come out as, if you experience fear, or have you ever experienced fear, but it was very intentional. When you experience fear, what do you do with it? And so we looked at several ways in which we tend to respond to fear. We looked at uh, six different things. These are 
on your notes, or from last week at least. We looked at six ways in which many of us tend to respond to fear. Now, you may go through that list and say, well, that's, that's really not me, and fine, I'm, maybe you might be the exception, and so there's something on there that, uh, or there's something else that isn't on that list. By no means am I saying that these are the six things uh, in which we all respond to fear. But we looked at several, the first one being resignation. When we experience fear, we quit. We, we don't just detach, but we quit. We drop the ball. We're done with this. I'm out, right? You bounce from whatever it is that you're doing. Uh, the second way in which we looked at it was detachment. Some of you tend to have uh, resonated loudly with detachment, that you not only uh, separate yourself physically from others, but you also emotionally disconnect from them. So you respond to fear with detachment. The third one was uh, you respond to fear with pride, right? That might be you, that you respond to fear with pride because you've been raised or taught to believe it's you who pulls yourself up by your bootstraps. It's your work. You're the one who's going to get yourself out of this mess. You dug this hole, do it, pull yourself up and get through it, right? So that might be you. Uh, The next one was anger. In light of anger, you respond to fear with foolish decisions. You respond to fear with unwise choice of words. It comes out not just in your language, but in your actions, and others are affected by you. That could be your friends, your family, those closest to you. Um, What else did we look at? We looked at control. This is the one that I associated closely with. That when you experience fear, you respond with control. You want to control the people. You want to control the situation. You want to control the conversation. You want to control how much is being done, how little will be done. You want to control everything. And I would add, especially with control, you could look at, you could apply this to all those other responses. Usually, you're not quick to say, oh yeah, that's me. I respond with control or anger or pride. But you will usually say, well, the reason I respond like this is because I'm trying to communicate or do X, Y, and Z. For instance, when I respond out of control, I mask it by saying I am trying to protect myself or I'm trying to protect my family. Right? And to an extent, that might be true, but there's also still underlying issues. So control was one of them. What was the other one? I think it was projection. I don't know if that's six or not, but the other one was projection. Sometimes when in fear, your anxiety creeps up, and so what you end up doing is you project your fear, your anxiety onto others. You will literally gather other people around you for the sake of projecting your fear onto them, for the sake of projecting your anxiety onto them. And each one of these responses, again, by no means am I saying that these are the only ones. You might have something different. But one thing that they do share in common is that when we respond out of one of these, there's an underlying issue. It's not just because I desire to be controlling, but the underlying issue is that, man, I'm afraid, based on the example I gave you last week in light of my wife's uh, daughter, uh, the example is that I'm afraid to be left out of the picture, right? Right? I'm afraid of abandonment. Some of you respond out of anger because you fear rejection. Maybe it's been something that's been done over and over. You have deep emotional wounds that are just still too fresh. And so what tends to happen is the walls go up, 
right? The, the, the walls go up, the fortress goes up around your heart, however you'd like to describe it in any fancy way. And you become self-protected. You become defensive. And so you respond these ways. Now, the question, apart from what do you do when you experience it, one of the questions that I would additionally ask is, are you at the very least honest with why you respond a certain way? And chances are we're not, right? But one of the things that we learned last week was Habakkuk experienced fear. And he responded totally different than we tend to respond, right? Habakkuk responded totally different. Now, his response came after being sanctified over the course of several weeks. When you read through Habakkuk, even though it may only be three chapters, uh, many times we tend to read short books and say, well, this happened over the course of a couple of days. This happened over the course of a week, when really we're looking over the course of several months in Habakkuk's life. And so what we saw at chapter one is that he was the complaining prophet. God, when are you going to do something? God, when are you going to work? God, I thought you said you were mighty. I thought you we're going to do works, and you're not doing any of it. When are you going to do something? And then something in Habakkuk changes, and we're now in chapter 3, where he is now worshiping God. He went from being the complaining prophet to now the one who is rejoicing in the Lord. All right? And last week, we looked at what he turned to. He turned to what he knows. And so he turned to the character of God. He turned to the faithfulness of God. And that led him to worship God. Doesn't mean that he wasn't afraid. And if, and if you're wondering, well, what is this guy afraid of? There's an oncoming, uh, an, an un- oncoming, am I saying that right? Upcoming, no, whatever. There's an invasion coming. And so uh, <laughs> there's an invasion coming. And so, so people are, are about to like wipe his people out. So he's pretty freaked out, right? There's, there's pending invasion, right? And so he's afraid, but he responds to that fear with worship. He worships God, right? And so here's, here's what I want you to know as we go into our time. This is all introduction, by the way. This is what I want you to know as we go into our time. There's actually three things I want you to know. Number one, As we walk into these last two verses, Habakkuk's circumstance still hasn't changed. The only thing that has changed, and it's the most important, is the condition of his heart. It's the only thing that's changed. You see, I think when we look at especially movies and drama and TV series and stuff like that, and I'm going to say it, and then I'll go back and explain it a certain way. Oftentimes, what we see is when the, when the good guy is under a great deal of stress, or he's facing several trials and obstacles, right? He does, or she does certain things that amount into them having victory. And everything is different at the end, and it's a happy ending, and the good guy won, The circumstance was changed. The people were changed. The bad guys were put in prison. Everything was good, right? We tend to see that in dramas and movies. I mean, that's what gets us excited. So what happens when it doesn't change? I think many times when we look at that stuff, we associate our life with that. Man, if I just do the right thing, there's going to be a good outcome, If I just do the right thing, things are going to change. 
And so what we see Habakkuk do is he goes before God and he complains and he bring, he's brutally honest with God and he complains and he starts talking about where are you? When are you going to do X, Y, and Z? I thought you were holy. I thought you were mighty. I thought you were powerful. When are you going to be doing these things? Why are you punishing your people? I am seeing all of this stuff happen and unravel before me. And what God does is he forces him to look at the condition of his own heart. And as Habakkuk begins to look at the condition of his own heart, the condition of his heart changes. He goes from complaining to worshiping to rejoicing. And his circumstance has not changed. God has not lifted his hand from the discipline that his people are about to receive. Right? If we were to measure that by uh, cinematic standards, Habakkuk's about to lose. But he doesn't, right? He doesn't because what we're going to see today and what we began to see last week is that he's actually putting his trust in the coming Messiah and the one who will come and the one who promised he will not delay. And his name is Jesus where Jesus eventually comes and enters into human history and lives the life that you and I cannot live and dies the death that you and I deserve to die and freely gives the grace that you and I cannot earn. That's what Habakkuk looks to, where as you and I look back at his work, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so we're going to talk about joy today. And so here's what I want you to know about joy, and then I'll read the verses. Here's what I want you to know, that in the presence of God, we find joy in spite of our circumstances. In the presence of God, we find joy in spite of our circumstances. Let me, let me read these two verses, and I'll pray, and we'll jump in. Here we go. Verses 17 through 19. Habakkuk writes, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation." God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. So there's some instructions at the end. Let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we, um, as we dive into your word, may our hearts become uh, undistracted by schedules or lunch or things that we might be doing afterwards or even things that are going on right now in our mind. May our hearts be um, undistracted by the preaching of your word. And in a lot of the preaching of your word, I, I pray that you would set me aside and that it would be your Holy Spirit, not just working in me, but through me, speaking into the lives of your people. Convicting hearts, challenging hearts, and ultimately changing hearts. And may we hear your word and ultimately our lives transform in spite of our circumstances like Habakkuk. May we look to Jesus as the founder and perfecter of our faith and in doing so bring you all the glory. 
We ask all these things in your name. Amen. All right, here we go. So I think it's verse 19. I've, I've, officially, I've closed my Bible and I just have everything written down in front of me. So there, the section, I think it's in verse 18. Excuse me, yeah, it is in verse 18 where he writes, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy, right? I'm glad it's up, right? He says, I will take joy. I want you to underline that. I want you to highlight that. That's where we're going to find ourselves pretty much the whole time this morning. But in light of that, let me give you a little bit of context into what he is saying. When Habakkuk writes, though the fig tree should not blossom, the produce of the olive fail, the the fields yield no fruit. Here's Here's what he's saying. Have you ever been in those scenarios or seasons or circumstances where as you begin to talk to other people, maybe your friends or your family, and they'll ask you, and it's a difficult season that you might find yourself in, and they begin to ask you, well, what if this happens? And what if that happens? And what if this should come? And what if that should ultimately unravel? That's kind of what Habakkuk is saying in this section, right? But he's not saying it in the form of a question. He's saying it in the form of a welcome, See, when people give us those questions, the what ifs, we not only don't like them, but we also receive them so that we can try to prepare for uncertainty, right? He has no clue what will happen, and he welcomes it. That's what he is saying in this section. So when he writes, though the fig tree should not blossom, he's like, what if the fig tree doesn't blossom? He's like, what if it doesn't, right? What if there are no fruit on the vines? What if there aren't any fruit on the vines? What if Costco closes? What if Costco closes? Right? That's what he's saying. (laughs) Right? Where where he says, uh, the flock be cut off from the fold and fields yield no food. What What if there's no money coming in? We can't pay our expenses. We can't go grocery shopping. And he's like, what if money doesn't come in? And what if we can't pay for our expenses? He's welcoming these uh, scenarios uh, because, one, his joy isn't found in them. He's not necessarily concerned with those circumstances, but he's welcoming them because he's going to transition over to joy, whereas you and I tend to shut those things out because we hate uncertainty. We don't want to think about Costco closing. We don't want to think about something else happening that's outside of our control. And if we just kind of know what's going to happen, it'll help us to better prepare. And I'm not a prepper. I'm just a preparer. And so I'm doing all these kinds of things so that I have some certainty. And Habakkuk is saying, I don't have any certainty, uh, but my joy is not found in the certainty that I have based on the circumstance that I'm in. My joy is found in the Lord. Right? So let's go to verse 19 where he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And as I mentioned, I want to focus in on where he writes, take joy. I think that's incredibly important. It's incredibly important because that's a place where he finds himself in. So if it's a place where he finds himself in, taking joy or rejoicing must come as a result of something. This might just be how my brain works. And so what we're going to do is we're going to reverse engineer. We're going to reverse engineer and thinking, well, how did he get to joy? What was it that led him to joy. If joy is the result of something, what was he doing? Well, let's go back to chapter three, and I'm giving you just general pictures. You can go back and reread or listen to the sermon, but in chapter three that Pastor Chris from Harlingen started us on, we were in last week, one of the things that we saw Habakkuk do was worship God, and we see him do this also in chapter one. 
we see Habakkuk worship God. And I'm going to expand on what all of these things are in just a moment. Right now, I'm just going to be quick. So joy is a result of worship. Right? We can see that at the beginning of chapter 3. We can see that at the beginning or the middle of, of chapter 1. Right? We, find, we, we, we find Habakkuk in worship of God in order to find his joy in God. Well, if worship is the catalyst that brings joy, well, where did worship come from? Right? Let's go back to chapter 3. Last week, what did Habakkuk do? He turned to the character of God. He turned to the faithfulness of God. Well, in order to understand the character of God, in order, in order to know the faithfulness of God, he needed to know the truth about God. And the truth about God is found in the Word of God. And so he found himself going back to the truth. He went back to what he knows, what God has done, who God is. Well, truth is the result of something too, right? All of this is labeled, laid out in Habakkuk. Not necessarily in these words, but nevertheless, truth is a result of something. So when you begin to know somebody and when you begin to know their likes and their dislikes, what tends to happen? You build a friendship. Another word for a friendship is a relationship. So the truth about God that is found in the Word of God is a result of time spent with God. So Habakkuk found himself in a relationship with God. So now we can track everything to joy that a relationship with God should lead us to the truth about God, which then leads us in worship of God and finally leads us into the joy in God. And so, as I mentioned, I'm going to talk about each one of these, but I also want to talk about their opposites. I think we need to talk about their opposites because we need to put it on the table because you and I, as followers of Jesus, are quick to forget not only who we are, but are quick to develop relationships because we think we already got it. Because at some point, sometimes, the gospel becomes assumed. At some point and sometimes, the gospel becomes old news. But it wasn't here. So let's look at their opposites. And this is, again, where we'll spend the crux of our time. Let's start with the first one. We're going we're gonna to go from the beginning, so starting with relationship. We're going to look at relationship and, uh, and routine. Relationship and routine are, are the first two that I want to talk about. And so I'll talk about relationship in just a bit. <clears throat> Christians fall all the time into routine. We fall into, rather than having a relationship with God, we fall into the routine of checking off boxes, Right? I did read my Bible today. I had my quiet time in my coffee. I put it on Instagram. You can hold me accountable that way, right? And so we see all of these things uh, as Christian moral duties, right? And here's what I will say about routine. I don't think routine is bad as long as it strengthens the relationship. The vehicle that carries you in routine and relationship is intentionality. Like you, you are not just doing it, but you want to do it. Too many times, 
We as Christians separate those two. And oftentimes we fall into the routine. You see, in a relationship, our faith is strengthened because we learn more about God and ultimately we learn more about ourselves. And we do that through prayer and Bible study and meditation. But when it comes to routine, if relationship strengthens our faith, then routine desensitizes our faith. And you know what I mean. You just do it to do it. There's no intention behind it. There's no relationship that is growing. There is no relationship that is strengthening. You're just really good at doing tasks. You're really good at strikethroughs. And you're really good at checking off the boxes. I got my daily verse on my Bible app. That's cool. Man, did you pray on it? Did you meditate on it? Did you find yourself setting some time aside? And the truth is, when that sounds boring, we've desensitized our faith. When that sounds dull, when that sounds dull, the gospel becomes old news. It was something that excited me 10 years ago. And you know, it's good for me that I go to church and I'm in community group and it's good for me that I get my daily Bible verse and the hashtags help out a lot and all of that stuff, right? But there's no relationship. In a relationship, our faith is strengthened. In routine, our faith is desensitized. That's number one. Number two, truth and pride. As we spend intentional time with the Lord and Bible study and prayer and even among others who are like-minded, as we spend time, what it leads us to do is it leads us to grow in the truth about God. And the truth about God is found in the Word of God. And so we learn more about who He is and what He has done and what He is doing in our lives and the fact that one day Jesus will return to reclaim His bride. We learned about, we learn about sanctification. We learn about how God is just at work in us and we're just so stubborn. We learn that the gospel is actually a very simple message. It's just that we make it so complicated because we love complexity, even though our Instagram doesn't say that. And so there's all of these different things that come on light of truth. And so when we're growing in truth, we're growing in our understanding about God. We're growing in uh, knowing about what God has done. We're becoming confident in his word. We see our need for him. The more we spend time with him, the more we learn about him, the more we learn about ourselves. But if we have found ourselves in a routine only, then what can happen is instead of turning to the truth about God, we turn to our arrogance. Because in routine, if the goal is to just check off the box, when it comes to pride, you've already heard it. You already know it. The gospel is old news. The gospel is assumed that just because we're at church on a Sunday, everybody must be a Christian. So the gospel becomes assumed now. And that's what tends to happen. And so our arrogance increases. Our pride increases. I've heard it before. I've been there. I grew up in the church. I've read it before, and man, I just don't hear from God. Okay. Okay. Yet Bibles are closed. 
your distance from God, especially when it comes to pride, what tends to happen is that, man, in, in relationship and in, tr- in learning about the truth about God, what happens is we are drawn closer to God, whereas in pride, we are separated from God. Well, how can that be? Check it. I mean, if you go back just to uh, the history of, 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 of Scripture, man, what got Satan kicked out of heaven? It's pride. Cool, so we're choosing to be like him. Now, that's heavy. Right? That's heavy, but that's the truth when it becomes routine only. That's the truth when the gospel is old news now. That's the truth when it's been assumed. We increase our arrogance, and we increase in our pride. And so this would be a reminder of that, man, are you, is your relationship with God strengthening? Is your faith, I should say this way, is your faith growing stronger? Is your understanding of who God is growing as a result of a relationship with him, as a result of your time spent in his word, right? And then it leads us to the third one, worship and idolatry. When we're looking at relationship, we're looking at spending time with God, which leads us to the truth about God, which leads us to worship of God, right? Leads us to worship God. You see, in worship, when we learn about the truth of God, in worship, you and I are humbled. You and I are humbled because we see our need for Jesus. We see how great and how glorious he is. And we see how much we are actually in need of a savior. In worship is where we begin to see hearts transformed. This is where we see confession and repentance take place. This is where we see people Excuse me. This is where we see people uh, pursue humility and fix their eyes on Jesus. But if our hearts are hardened, our worship turns into idolatry. Now, idolatry is anything or anyone that takes the place of God. And particularly, if our hearts are hardened when it's already come to routine, which leads into pride— we're more than likely upset with God because he hasn't given us our idols. God does not serve to give you your idols. And if you've been bought into that lie, you might say, but I have a verse. We can look to the Psalms. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean you're getting a car. What the psalmist is saying is delight yourself in the Lord and you receive Jesus. But we buy into the lie that, man, I'm going to church. I'm doing all of the right things. Why haven't you done anything? And what you're really doing is exposing and revealing the idols of your heart. Joan Calvin says that our hearts are an idol factory. We're constantly producing idols. And again, it could be anything or anyone apart from God. Yeah, it could be your kids. It can be your marriage. It can be that job promotion that you're hunting after. It could be some sort of status, right? It could be achievement, whatever it is. Yeah, you can, like, when we think of idols, or maybe when I used to think of idols, I remember only thinking about the golden calf. 
right, in Exodus. Right? All of God's people began worshiping this golden calf. Now, here's the thing. Let's just be real. I've never seen anybody worship a golden calf, but I have seen people worship money. I have seen people worship power. I have seen people worship family. I have seen people worship success. I have seen people worship themselves, right? Maybe you're the same. Maybe you've never seen a golden calf, but you've seen everything else, right? God doesn't serve to give us our idols. The purpose of worship is to see our need for him because we are humbled by him as we are brought before him. Worship and idolatry, right? The next one. And this is the last one, joy and repentance. And actually, let me, let me back up real quick. Let's go back up to, to worship and idolatry. When we're looking at worship and idolatry, one of the things I mentioned specifically in worship is we see hearts are transformed, but we also see things like confession and repentance take place. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about why confession is important. I think it's easily uh, overlooked it's easily something that we don't talk about, and particularly in Christian circles and in church culture, confession is just something that we do, right? So let's look at a few things. These aren't going to be on the notes, so if you're taking notes, I'll try not to go too fast, even though I probably will, right? When we're looking at confession, here are three reasons, and I came up with this this morning, as to why we need confession, why confession is important. Number one, this is kind of the definition of it, but number one, in confession, the whole point of confession is that we agree with the charges that have been brought before us. That's your sin, right? We agree with the charges that have been brought before us. And in addition to that, God's judgment that you and I deserve to be judged. So we are made aware of those charges. Doesn't sound too exciting right now. The second thing that we learn in confession that happens in confession is, man, as we fall to our knees, as we're being humbled and agree with the charges that are brought before us, the second thing is that we come to this acknowledgement and recognition that we are unworthy of the grace of God. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That we are unworthy of His grace. And the third thing that happens in confession is that God's grace is our only hope. God's grace is our only hope. And the one who provides that grace is Jesus. That upon the cross, upon the cross, he died in our place and exchanged our sin for his righteousness that we receive redemption. We receive a second chance. We receive, more importantly, a new life. That's what happens in confession. And then repentance is turning away from our sin and placing our eyes in Jesus. And here's the thing. It's not a one-time thing. Martin Luther says that upon God calling us, uh, he has called us to a life of confession and repentance. It's, a, it's ongoing forever and forevermore, right? It's part of our sanctification. So that's what I wanted to say about worship. <clears throat> and in light of idolatry and confession, we are made aware, hopefully, of our idols. The last one, joy and unrepentance or impenitence, right? So relationship is spending time with God. 
The truth is knowing about God. Worship is worshiping God. And then joy is finding, or then worship leads us to having uh, joy in God and unrepentance. Not, not that that's our joy. Anyway, <clears throat> when we're looking at joy, if joy is the result of relationship, truth, and worship, then joy is assurance. Joy is assurance and confidence in the finished work of Jesus. I mean, how do we know that? Because we have a relationship with him, because we know about him, because we find ourselves in his word, and his word leads us to worship, which leads us to be transformed, to confess and repent of our sin, which then leads us to joy, assurance, confidence, that in the presence of God, we have joy. Does that have anything to do with our circumstance? No. It doesn't have anything to do with your circumstance. But it has everything to do with you and God. Right? It has everything to do with you and God. When we're looking at unrepentance or impenitence, if rooting is checking off the boxes, which leads to us separating ourselves from God, which leads to us being uh, hardened to God because we don't have our idols, then ultimately what tends to happen is that our hearts have become hardened, bitter, separated, and we are unrepentant. We are unrepentant. This is the part, this is the culmination where the individual is like, man, I've tried church, I've tried religion, I've tried this Jesus, nothing is working, nothing is changing, I don't want anything to do with this, this is getting really hard and nothing has changed, and yet God in His sovereign word says, that is not how I work. That is not how I work. And so through His Holy Spirit... And he begins to redeem our hearts as we confess and repent of our sin. Christian, repent. Repent of your sin. Some of you may be holding on to some serious bitterness and hardened heartage. I don't even know if that's a word. Right? But it is in the moment. Some of you are holding fast to that. Some of you are thinking, until that person has this conversation with me, then this will begin to soften. What if that conversation doesn't come? Or what if it's not what you expect? What if something does not change externally? Repent. The message of Habakkuk is that it was a guy who is was chosen by God and was brutally honest and complained to God. And throughout his complaining, God changed the condition of his heart by forcing him and showing him the depth of his heart, the hardness of his heart. And that led to him repenting. That led to him and his, the condition of his heart changing. Christian, repent. Repent of your sin. I'm not asking you to think about the other person or the other people or the circumstance. I'm talking to you. Don't start writing down anything else about someone else or something else. I'm talking to you. Repent of your sin. Well, what about? I don't know, man. Just be like a backer. Be like, what about it? What if they don't talk? What if they don't? I, I don't know. I don't have all the answers. Clearly, Habakkuk does not have all the answers either. 
but he knows who does. So repent of your sin. Place your trust in Jesus. As you confess, don't just come to this place of like, yeah, I've screwed up, man. See it that we are unworthy of his grace and that God's grace is our only hope. God's grace is our only hope. And as we are humbled, we begin to worship God and we then find our joy in God, not the circumstances. Jesus endured the cross with the joy that was set before him for the redemption of his people and the glory at the right hand of the Father. We've been quoting Hebrews a lot throughout this time, and I'll, I'll do it again. This is Hebrews 12, verse 2. The writer says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. I don't think he was happy about that circumstance. That could just be me. Despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He looked to the glory that was coming and he looked to the redemption of his people. Find your joy in the presence of God. Here it is. This is going to be a play on words. Hopefully you catch on. Find your joy in the presence of God, not the presence of God of God. Eh? <laughs> no? Okay. <laughs> Back to seriousness. Our joy is centered around the presence of God, not in the presence of God. You guys feel me on that? Now, how that carries on into Habakkuk's closing statement, this is what he says at the end. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Here, here's what he's saying. Glad this is up. Here's what he's saying when he starts talking about the deer. Right? What he's talking about is how deer don't think about where or how they're going to step. They just do their thing. Right? They do their Bambi thing. Right? Like especially if they're climbing high places, they just do it naturally. Their capabilities come, I mean, I, I can't, I think I'm overstating it. Their capabilities come natural, but their capabilities come as a result of who they are. I don't know how deer think, but I would imagine that if I could animate it, it would be, well, I'm a deer. This is what I do. I prance around, right? Like, so when he says, he makes my feet like the deer's, he makes me tread on my high places, what he is saying is that his identity determines his activity. That should be natural. That should be natural. If he is finding his joy in the God of his salvation, then what he does comes naturally. What we do because of who we are should come naturally. Should come naturally and as a result of our joy in the presence of God. That's what he is saying in verse 19. That our joy that is found in the presence of God should not just remind us of our identity, but it also reminds, reminds us of our activity and how that should naturally flow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close this time, um, Lord, I pray, and I pray that you would be glorified, that you were glorified. 
Lord, I know that you know, man, through your Holy Spirit, the hearts of your people, of your sheep, of your church. My prayer is that you would send your Holy Spirit right now uh, to wrap himself around their hearts for the purpose of being humbled, man, for the purpose of confessing and repenting of their sin. Just, just, and I pray the same for me, Lord, so that we would see how great you are, so that we would see our dire need for you, so that we would see that we are unworthy of your grace, but that your grace is our only hope. Lead us, lead us to a change in our heart, not in our circumstance. May the cry of our hearts be, change me, not my circumstance. Lord, as we transition into a time of tithes and offerings, Lord, uh, this is the part where we give you our stuff. This is the section where we give you our stuff when we continue to worship you. Where we continue to worship you as a result of what you are doing in our lives, as a result of us relinquishing the control we think we have. And so in light of the work of this Holy Spirit in our hearts, may we give abundantly, sacrificially, and most importantly, faithfully, so that we would be conformed into the image of Jesus. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.